Anybody here ever made a mistake? How many? That's a great answer right there. I'm talking about not just like a little mistake, going to the 10 o'clock instead of the 8.30 on a hot day, but a major mistake. Like you think I married the wrong person. That kind of mistake. I should have had more kids, but I can't now, it's too late. Or I should have had less kids, but there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> like colossal big mistakes. I should have taken that job and moved there. I shouldn't have taken this job. I shouldn't have quit. Like big time mistakes. And now you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I've ruined my life. What now? How do I go forward after the mistakes that I've made? Have I squandered myself? If you felt that way or thought that way, welcome to this section of the book of Acts. Because we track the apostle Paul, who's a magnificent guy. He's used greatly of the Lord, but he's still a man. And it would appear that Paul's life right here goes off course, goes off the rails. That he makes some mistakes that lead him to a really bad spot. So what I'm gonna try to do is track through pretty quickly four chapters of the Bible, and then there's a money payoff verse at the end, okay? So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, try to track with me as you see Paul begin to get off course. And then you have to make some decisions about, was it God's will for him to do this? Or was it Paul goofing up? All right, so Acts 20, verse 22 begins it. He's now talking to a group of people and he's expressing something inside of him. It's almost an internal war, I think. Acts 20, 22. Paul speaking, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the spirit. Numa in the Greek, just Numa, that's it. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit, Greek, Hagios, Numa, testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So there's some discussion there, like, what does this mean? Is this Paul kind of feeling led one way, but God's spirit kind of saying, look out. Like, is there an eternal battle here? Paul's trying to figure out, should I go to Jerusalem? Because God's spirit keeps kind of telling me like, if you go there, it's gonna be super tough, right? So that's how it begins. Paul has this desire. I want to go to Jerusalem. And it appears God's spirit is telling him, mm, be careful. Well, next chapter, chapter 21, verse four. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now he's with a group of believers, people that love Jesus. And they're telling Paul, bro, I feel God is saying something to you. Like you should not go to Jerusalem. And then it gets even better or worse, depending on your point of view. Verse 10, while we are staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus We've met him before in the book of Acts. He prophesied that a, that a famine was coming and it actually came. So he's legit. So this prophet comes, travels down to where Paul is. 
And coming down to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, now Luke has joined him, the author of this book, and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Internal battle, now external. The people he's running into are saying, bro, don't go. This prophet comes down, rips off Paul's belt, which would be awkward. Like, dude, what are you doing with my belt? Ties himself up and says, this is what's gonna happen to you. So now just blatantly look out bad news. Don't go to Jerusalem. How does Paul respond? Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You're not gonna change my mind. You're not gonna tell me I'm not going there. I am going to Jerusalem. I don't care if you tell me I'll be fed to lions, I'm still going. I don't care if you tell me that I'll have to fight, fight gladiators, I'm going. I don't care if I go down there and I'm crucified. I don't care if I go down there and the worst punishment of all happens to me. I have to go vegan. I'm going. You will not stop me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, okay? So one minute here, Bible nerds, who was Paul called to minister to? Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles, Galatians 2.8. Peter is the apostle. Apostle just means sent one. He's the sent one to the Jewish people. I'm the sent one to the Gentiles, right? He wants to go to Jerusalem. Who lives in Jerusalem, Jews or Gentiles? Jews. So if you put all the pieces together from what's happening here, it seems like God is telling Paul, you probably shouldn't go down there. That's not what you're called to. That's not your ministry. Don't go down there. Now, God never forbids Paul from going down there. It's not a transgression. It's not a sin. But to me, it seems like he's making a mistake. And God is telling him, warning him, don't go down there don't go down there. Maybe that's how you felt at times. Maybe there's a time in your life where you kind of felt God impressing something on you. And maybe the people around you were telling you the same thing and you didn't listen, you didn't heed it and your life kind of went off course and now things aren't very good because look what happens to Paul now because he heads this direction. Chapter 21, verse 21. He makes it to Jerusalem. He meets with the church there. Look, what's ha look what happens. The church is zealous for the law in Jerusalem. Verse 21. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So he meets with the church, the group he thinks he's gonna connect well with, and the first thing they tell him is this, bro, you got a really bad reputation here. Everyone thinks that you're against the law, the temple, the teachings of Moses. And they are not gonna like that, Paul. Like you 
are not really that welcome here. So what are we going to do about this? So the church in Jerusalem hatches a plan. Here's the plan. Keep reading verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but, and here's the key, you yourself also live in observance of the law. Bible people. Did Paul live in observance to the law? Minimally, we know this. 1 Corinthians 9, 21. Paul says, to those that were outside the law who didn't keep the Old Testament law, I became as those outside the law. So what that appears to mean is this, and you read Galatians as well. It appears that Paul, when he was with churches, that they're eating pork chops and shrimp or whatever, medium rare steak, he enjoyed himself and ate it without being worried about it, without being caught up. But more, if you really start to explore Paul's theology, especially places like Galatians 3, 22 through 24, Paul says this, the law had a certain purpose. It was like a guardian. It kept me safe. But then I graduated from that guardian and I'm not under the law anymore. I'm free from it because grace has been awakened in my life. I don't live by the law anymore. So you, you, you have those texts. So what I would expect Paul to do here when they're telling him about, hey, we gotta keep the law is I would expect Paul to preach right here. To be like, wait a second, guys. Are you kidding? We're not under the law anymore. Second Corinthians 3, 6. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit brings life. Bro, we've been given life by Jesus, not by the law. Or Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the son of God who loved me and died for me, not by the law. And in verse 21, he says, and if righteousness could come by the law, Jesus died in vain. What you guys are saying is Jesus' death doesn't matter. Or Romans 10, four, that Christ is the end of the law. The whole goal of the law was to get us to Jesus Christ. He's the end of it. And once you're there, you're done. Or Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Oh, foolish Galatians, how'd you get saved? By rules you kept, by laws that you did, or by the hearing of faith and the power of the Spirit? How'd you get saved? How did you get saved? Was it some class you took? You graduated Salvation 101, got a certificate, you're saved now by rules and regulations that you kept perfectly? No, Ephesians 2, eight and nine, you're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. I would expect Paul to preach this. Man, you guys are, here's what it'd be like. It'd be like high school graduates, guys that just graduated this year. It'd be like someone saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. I know you graduated, all that kind of stuff. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these crayons and this Winnie the Pooh picture, and I want to see if you can color within the lines. Can you do that? All right, I want you to take this, this piece of paper that has outlined letters, and I want you to take this big fat pencil, and I want you to see if you can follow the outlined lines and do your ABCs. What? Here's some times tables. Can you do these times tables? Or the worst of all, here's a problem I want you to try to solve. A train leaves New York City at 
<laughs> what would you say? You're like, no, I graduated, man. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm free. I'm not going back to that stuff. That's what I expect Paul to do here. What does Paul do? Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Doesn't even argue, just does it. And there's been a 2000 year debate on this. Some theologians are mad at Paul. Why would Paul ever do that? Why would he go back into the temple system? Why? They're mad at him. And there's really two main camps. Either Paul was here being a peacemaker or Paul was being a compromiser. Maybe he was being a peacemaker. Maybe he was like, hey, this is what they're doing. I'll join in. Have you ever gone to a church that's very different than the church that you normally go to? Charity and I, we were in Israel two years ago. And so my goal, we were there like four Sundays. My goal was to try to go to the most diverse, different churches, different than what we do here, just to, just to go and be like, wow, wow, that's interesting. So the first weekend we went to this Coptic church and the Coptic church literally met in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's like one of the most holy sites in all Jerusalem. They met inside there. And so we go there and like part of the church service was we are all handed these candles and we walk single file like around this like maze inside the church. Now I didn't be like, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. I grabbed a candle. Okay, let's go. Marched along, right? Here we go. The next Sunday we went to this church and it was a messianic, charismatic Anglican church. I was like, what in the world? How do they do all those three? That's like a meat eating vegetarian. Like you just can't put those things together. Like what in the world kind of church is this? So you go there, we go there and it's like, man, you got the robes and the incense thing, like the high church going. And then all of a sudden in the back, there's a dude at the ram's horn going, you're like, what? Oh man, this is weird. And then communion was literally communal. Like one cup, everybody goes forward, drinks from the one cup. And people are coughing and sneezing. And I'm like, I'm getting in front of that dude. I am not drinking behind him. Get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, right? And then I don't drink alcohol at all. I'm, I'm a teetotaler. But that day I drank some wine because they use real wine, strong wine in their communion. So I have like zero tolerance. So by the end of the service, I'm back with the dude with the ram's horn. I'm going, praise God, man. <laughs> you just make peace. Like, okay, this is what we're doing. Let's do it. And maybe that's what Paul's doing. So maybe there's that side. Others say, no, he was wrong. He compromised. The book of Hebrews says there's no more sacrifice. The book of Hebrews makes it clear you're putting Jesus to um, crucifying him afresh by trying to go back to the temple and redo these things. No, he was absolutely wrong. And he compromised here. Whatever side you go on, what actually happens is interesting. Paul is prevented from ever offering a sacrifice. It's like God was like, no, you're not gonna do that. I'm not letting you go that far. Because look what happens. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place, Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul was brought up into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So he thinks he's gonna do this thing, but the seven days aren't complete. Before he's able to offer the sacrifice, a riot breaks out. And this mob grabs Paul and they're beating the snot out of him. I don't know how long it took for the soldiers to come down and rescue him, but a mob can do a lot of damage in one minute. So Paul would have been beaten and broken and bloodied, just a mess right here. Here's what I love about Paul. In spite of that, verse 37 says, as he was brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And then he goes on and says, hey, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And they give him permission. And Paul standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, I know you just want to kill me, but before you do, can I tell you more about Jesus? Like, I love Paul, tenacious. So now he gives this speech, goes on, right? Riot number one, starts talking again, has a hush. What happens in speech right after this riot? Look at verse 22. Up to this word, chapter 22, 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, riot number two. So Paul now thinks, if I could just talk to them, then they would see what I'm talking about and I could reason with them. Nope, riot number two. Then it gets even worse. Chapter 23, he meets with the Roman or the the Jewish Sanhedrin. It's their high court. It's the Supreme Court of the land. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them, bring him into the barracks. Strike three. Three riots in a row. Riot one, riot two, riot three. Each time he's almost killed. So to me, when you put this together, it seems like Paul went off the rail and he goofed up here and made a giant mistake. So my question on this is, what does God do when our life goes off the rails? What does God do when we make mistakes and maybe we knew better? Kind of like Paul, maybe we were warned, but we kind of thick-headedly keep going in and we just make a mess of our life. What does God do at that point? Does God say, Hey, you made your bed, sleep in it. Does God say stinks to be you? Does God shun us, speak to the hand. Does God say, hey, well, maybe you'll learn this time. Good luck with that. What does God do when you make colossal mistakes like Paul did right here, where he's imprisoned? And by the way, he's abandoned by the church. The church in Jerusalem, they don't appear again. It's like, they're like, oh, hands off, hot potato. You know, the the zealous Jews don't like him. And now he's in prison, we're done with him. So he gets abandoned by the church. What does God do to us? Well, the next verse is brilliant. One of the best 
to me in the book of Acts. Here's what happens. Verse 11, chapter 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, full of remorse, full of regret, full of worry. God shows up in the jail cell and number one, stood by him. It's been rightly said, a true friend walks in when the rest of the world walks out on you. That's what God does right here. The Bible says this, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Even if we make a mess of our life, there's no like extra verse there, parentheses, unless you really screw things up, then God's done with you. There's not. He will ne- it's a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then number two, what God says is this. Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What God says here is, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You shared about me and I'm proud of you for that. The way Paul would have looked at the last three riots in a row, three strikes and I'm out. And the way Jesus looked at those circumstances were radically different. Paul looked at failure, 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 riot, riot, riot. Jesus looked at faithful, faithful, faithful. You kept sharing about me. I love that. It reminds me of the little boy that brought home his report card and it was straight F's. And his dad's like, what in the world? What do you have to say for yourself, son? And he said, dad, you should be proud of me. The dad said, why? Because you know, I'm not cheating. I love that. Jesus has a way of extracting the precious even from our mistakes. Paul, you probably shouldn't have come to Jerusalem. You probably shouldn't have gone to the temple. Those were mistakes, but guess what? In the midst of those mistakes, you kept telling people about me and I am so proud of you. Listen to me. Jesus keeps... Jesus keeps a record of our successes, not of our strikeouts. Do you know that? It's 1 Corinthians 3. It's the end of days when we stand before Jesus. And it says at that time, there'll be like this pile of stuff that we've done. Mistakes, blow it cases, sins, transgressions called wood, hay and stubble. And then inside of that, there's silver and gold and gems. And in a moment, guess what happens when we stand before Jesus? all the junk disappears. It's burned up, it's gone. And all that remains, the gold medals, the silver medals, the gems, that's all that remains. Because God doesn't keep a record of our strikeouts, but of our successes. And he says to Paul here, hey, yeah, mistakes, mistakes, but man, you were faithful. You were so faithful. And then lastly, he says this, so you must testify also in Rome. If you know Paul, Paul had this deep, deep desire to go to Rome. It's back in chapter 19. I wanna go to Rome so bad. I don't know how to get there. It's really expensive to travel there. I don't know how I'm ever going to get to Rome. Here's what God does. He takes Paul's mistake after mistake, right after right after right. And he's like, guess what I'm gonna do for you now? I'm gonna get you an all expense paid trip to Rome 
courtesy of the Roman government. Yeah, hello, how awesome is that? That's God. Do you know that God has resources that you and I are not aware of? Do you know that? That God has an ability that his ways are higher than our ways. And if we'll let him, he'll do things incredibly. Like I, I just was reflecting on my life this morning. And last night we went to this um, great wedding, super fun wedding. And I'm there with my wife and I, you know, weddings are beautiful people, right? Everyone's beautiful. And I kept thinking to myself, everyone knows my wife is the most beautiful here, <laughs> right? And you better stop looking at her, buddy. <laughs> I'm so blessed. Like I got the best wife in the world. And then I was talking with my son, Elijah, who's 10 and he's just a squirrel, kind of like me when I was his age. And I'm just like, you're such a fun kid. You're just a, such a fun kid. I love you. And then I'm looking at Myron, my, my youngest, and he's just like doing Brody's on the grass because he ate like four um, cupcakes. Just, I'm like, how cool is he? He's so awesome. And then my three daughters, I'm like, they are so beautiful. I've got to buy some guns, man. Really got to buy a gun. I said, oh, I'm so blessed. So blessed. Think about this church. Like I dreamed of, when I was, wanted to start a church, I kept dreaming about if, if Jesus, we could have a church of 250 people, it'd be so awesome. So awesome. Man, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I look at the building like, oh my goodness. We won't think it was smoke next year. How cool is that? Praise God. I think about the staff and, and the elders right now, just brilliant men, brilliant women that I get to work with. I love my job. You know, here's the thing about God. The promise of the world is this. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I just think way beyond the desires of my heart. Jesus says, if you seek first my kingdom, this righteous thing, all this other stuff will be added unto you. I have found that to be so true in my life. Paul is finding it, finding it right here in the midst of massive colossal mistakes. God's like, I haven't forgotten you. I'm standing by you. And listen, Paul, your deepest desire, I'm gonna make it happen for you. You're not gonna thwart this plan that I have for your life. How brilliant is that? And you can go on and on about this, but there's really one point I wanna make and then I'm done. God comes after mistake, after mistake, after mistake. Paul has created chaos. The whole city is in chaos. His life is in chaos. The mission God has for him is in chaos. Like he's in chaos here. And God comes to him in a jail. And what does God do? Does he open up the jail and let him out? Is there an earthquake that happens? No, what does God do? He speaks. God speaks into Paul's chaos. And what you see, if you keep reading the book of Acts, out of that, out of God's word comes order. There's a plot to kill Paul. That plot is thwarted. Instead, Paul is moved from Jerusalem to a beachfront resort town called Caesarea, where he lives talking to kings and rulers for the next years. Like, it's so cool. All started by God's word. There's a theme in scripture that into chaos, God speaks and out comes order. How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. It was chaotic. That's what tovu abahu. The earth was chaotic. And the spirit hovered over the darkened waters. You ever been out in really dark waters at night? It's scary, isn't it? 
You're just kind of freaked out. So what that's saying is the earth was a scary, chaotic place. But then verse three, and God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. The darkness was gone. The chaos was gone. And then each day God speaks a little bit more and there's a little bit less chaos and a little bit more order and a little bit more beauty until it culminates in Eden, a good, good place for humans to dwell. That's God's plan, that he speaks into chaos and his word orders the chaos in such a way that it becomes an Eden. And you keep going, Genesis, 3, Genesis 6. Mankind, because of our jealousy of people and murder, and then these, these massive kings were, were getting these big harems of women, controlling women, that whole earth was thrown into chaos again. And so there's this flood that destroys. And at the end of the flood, God comes to Noah. And what does he do? He speaks. This time he speaks this order. You don't kill people anymore because people are created in the image of God. He speaks. And you can just track that through the Bible over and over. Mankind breaks things, mistakes, stupidity, sin, transgression, breaks things. And then God comes in and he speaks into that and brings order out of the chaos, out of the mistakes. He does that over and over. That's exactly what God's doing here with Paul. Paul, you've made a chaotic mess, but I'm gonna stand with you and I'm gonna speak order into your life. Listen to me. We have in our hands, most of us, or an app on our phone, God's word. God's word, the same word. And it says this, it is living and it's powerful. It's like a sword. It's able to reshape you in a way that's beautiful and brilliant, even if you've made mistakes. That God's word has that power to this day. But Matt, come on. God literally spoke to Paul. That's what I want. It's the only way God could get a message to Paul. There was no Gutenberg press back then. There's not, we have the advantage of having all of God's word right here at our hands, at our hands. We're able to read it and have the chaos of the world explained, have our faith increased, have wisdom given, having the understanding of the way things are, having our lives ordered in a way that you cannot imagine by being in God's word. That's the power it has. That's the power it has. Are you in God's word? If you've made mistakes, and gone south, and you're sitting here today thinking, man, what do I do? Can I highly recommend to you tomorrow morning, take some time and read God's word. Pray, Jesus, I need a Acts 23, 11 moment. I need that Bible verse. Do you, you have Bible verses in your life that you're like, that was so impacting in my life. I have a bunch of them. I journal them where it was God spoke to me through his word in such a way that I knew that was exactly the word for me. You pray for that. Oh, Matt, I don't even know. It's a big giant book. Where do I begin? What book do I start in? Well, begin in the book of Leviticus. That's what I recommend. <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> begin in the book of, no. Begin in the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Begin in the gospel of John and be praying, Jesus, I want my life reordered by your word. I wanna get understanding on the way things actually are. I need help from you and I'm gonna apply myself to your word. I wanna hear from you and he'll speak. I'll tell you this. I've had a lot of regret in my life. I've regretted movies that I've watched, television shows that I'm just, that was such a waste of time. Books that I've read, like, why did I read that book? Too much time in the news where you're just like, man, I'm depressed. Is there any good news anymore? 
I have never once read God's word and been, man, I regret reading God's word. Wish I hadn't done that. That was stupid. Never once. I've been reading it for a long, long time because every time I read it, I encounter Jesus because Jesus says, I come in the volume of the book. It speaks of me. And when I encounter Jesus, man, good things happen in my life. There's order. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Can I please recommend to you being God's word, being God's word. You might feel like you're in a prison. You've made mistakes. You've headed down the wrong path. Okay. Pray for Acts 23, 11, word from God, from his word, and he'll give it to you. That's what I found. All right. Lastly, what we do in the summers out here is we do baptisms. And if you want, there's a, you know, it seems like a church thing, but baptism goes way deep in the Bible. And what baptism speaks of is, is big picture, it's this. It's coming out of exile. That's what baptism actually is. That you're in exile, somewhere you're not supposed to be, and you go through these waters, Egypt, through the Red Sea, out of slavery. Wilderness wandering through the Jordan River into the promised land, from exile into God's presence. And it's built on that. So if you read John the Baptist, when he comes before Jesus, he goes back out to the Jordan River. And the reason why is this, he's saying, we need a new promised land. We've gone away from God again, and we need to get back to God. So we need to be rebaptized into, out of exile, into God's presence. And that's what baptism is built on. And so we hear every single Sunday in the outside amphitheater, invite those that say, I've been in exile a while. I've been outside and I want to come inside. And you come inside by the work of Jesus on your behalf, believing in that work. And then the book of Acts over and over says, and you're baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. It's just telling you you're out of exile now. You've come home. The homesickness that you have in your heart is settled. You come home now and it's brilliant. And so Jesus this day, I pray for any in here who feel like they've made a massive mistake in their life. And they wonder if they've squandered their life, squandered opportunities. And they're wondering how to get back. I pray that you would give them a word from scripture today, tomorrow, this week that would guide them, that they would know that you will never leave them or forsake them, that you would, they would know that you track our successes, not our failures, that they would know if they'll delight themselves in you, you'll give them the desires of their heart. I pray for those in here that need to leave the wilderness wandering, that need to leave Egypt and come into your presence. I pray that today they would be baptized putting their faith alone in the finished work of your son on their behalf. And I pray that their hearts would be purified of sin and their lives would be set free from the captivity of this world as only you can do. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that today we would have been fed our daily bread and we could go back into homes and restaurants and parks Go back into jobs, driving, conversations, coffee shops, and that we could be salt and light to Grant's Pass and that we would see your kingdom come and your will being done in our beautiful city.
And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.